0: There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly.
1: It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media want.
0: It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement.
1: It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us.
2: And uh, good morning, listeners. It is 7 o'clock. You are listening to 3CR, Melbourne's most radical radio station. Uh, I'm Zane, got Jacob in the studio too, and this is Green Left Radio for another week and of course it's important to acknowledge at the start of each show that we are broadcasting to you from the studios of 3CR in Collingwood and these studios are built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and uh, yeah, we pay respect to Elders, past, present and future and this always was and always will be
3: Aboriginal land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, so um, good morning, listeners. Um, we have a pretty, um, oh, I think we have a pretty good program um, lined up for you um, this morning. Um, we've got an interview with, um, I think um, Zane can introduce this, uh, with a CFMU person um, about a particular issue. Yeah, so we'll, we'll be talking shortly to Dusty, who's a
2: retired CFMEU member, a retired coal miner from the Hunter Valley. And uh, Dusty will talk to us a bit about just general happenings, activist happenings throughout the Hunter Valley, but in particular uh, a privacy breach that's
3: happened there for uh, BHP employees just this last couple of weeks. And we also have a pre-recorded interview with um, sort of an academic and sort of intellectual writer, um, writer, a bit of an expert on Latin America, Peter Cor Ko- Koenig or Koenig. Koenig um, and so we'll have a we have an interview with him um, lined up on talking about the recent Mexican elections and some of the, um, his analysis of that um, in the future we'll also be playing interview uh, interviews by him on sort of Venezuela because he just recently went to a kind of Venezuelan conference um, that invited a lot of um, uh, economists and so on um, by the Bolivian government uh, well as in the um, the Maduro government, so that would be interesting to listen to. Um, I guess maybe in terms of, um, some headline news to talk about, um, cause Green Left Weekly is in its, was in its two week issue, so we don't have that much to share from Green Left Weekly this week. Um, but I guess some of the things that have been dominating the headlines lately is, I mean, the first thing I actually want to talk about actually is, um, tonight there is going to be A counter-protest against um, Two kind of far-right internet celebrities um, Their name is Stefan Stephen Um And the other one is Laura Sovern. And um, what I think is So the counter-protest is going to be at 5.30 Organised by Campaign Against Racism, Fascism And people, we still don't know the venue at this point um, And we're Planning to kind of all gather At, at the Federation Square at 5.30 um, And then we'll all be going together to wherever the venue is. Um but some broader something broader, um a sort of thing I want to talk about in relation to their kind of appearances what's quite evident to me is that um a lot of far right figures are actually seeing Australia as like the home, their kind of natural home that they must do a speaking tour of. Um which I think is a bit, quite frankly, a bit disturbing, um, despite the fact that the far-right hasn't really gained as much ground in Australia as it has in Europe or even parts of the United States. Um, what's particularly significant is whenever these far-right um, figures always make a tour of Australia, um, they always seem to get a lot of mainstream attention. Um, for example, the media, for example, won't stop talking about how, you know, controversial of a figure Lauren Sovereign is. Um, to give a bit of a background on Lauren Sovereign, she's... To describe her, she's sort of like... Um, she positions herself... Because she's a, a woman, she's a 23-year-old, sort of young um, woman, um, who basically has some of the most repugnant sort of far-right views we have. I mean, she's anti-feminist. Um, she's anti-Islam. Um, she basically supports... Um, some of the one thing she particularly supports is that she thinks that, um, you know, those rescue boats that rescue refugees should actually be letting them drown at sea. That's sort of an example of how extreme her views is. And um, were you telling me she's part of a group which goes
2: and actually targets those rescue boats? Yes, basically. Is this in the Mediterranean? Yep. Yeah.
3: So it's like a, a fascist version of Sea Shepherd. But we don't know how successful they actually are. Um, because it's sort of almost like, for a lot of the far right, I mean, they kind of like to talk about doing things, but we don't know if in reality if they actually do it. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's that's... a disgusting concept, though. Yeah. Like... And another, I guess another... She's gained quite a massive kind of internet following on YouTube, along with Stephen um, Molinex. So they're kind of like basically internet celebrities, which makes them a bit different from, say, the likes of Milo Ghanopoulos, who have actually probably got a much broader platform but the fact is these um, people have millions of viewers and I think that is quite a scary thing in terms of um, the kind of far right um, dominance of the internet especially the kind of YouTube um, space. There's already quite a lot of issues with YouTube I find Um, there's particular celebrities people that get popular on it who don't necessarily have you know, the most positive of political views and of course there's also an issue I guess popping up in terms of like a lot of these youtubers are very popular with not not Lauren Sovereign in particular but um there's a lot of youtubers who are not exactly being good actually positive role models that are very popular with you know children under the age of 13 and so on and there is this sort of they kind of reflect Lauren Sovereign and Stephen Mollis kind of reflect this kind of dominant current of far right um that is has mostly built its base through the internet um and i guess the the sort of troubling implications that flow from that is they use the kind of su- the base of support that they've gained um, from the internet to you know mobilize you know far right the far right in terms of um, harassing women on and trans people on online spaces I mean this is all connects quite strongly with the whole gamergate kind of thing that happened in sort of the gaming kind of geek world and usually yes these thing, um, the harassment usually occurs in the context of you know online sort of geek spaces like where it's like gaming and tech mm. um, and yeah that's something I think quite troubling um that the about about the politics of that what these people resent so yeah and um so Lauren, Lauren Sovereign is actually in the country right now and she was actually spending a bit of time she posted a video on YouTube basically interviewing people on YouTube i um, interviewing people in Melbourne going around the streets of Melbourne um sort of positioning herself because no one knows who Lauren Sovereign what she actually looks like and how she looks is actually well, the only reason I know that
2: she even exists is from CAF organising this counter protest.
3: So. Yeah, yeah. So she went up to people asking, "Oh yes, should we, should we kill Lauren Sovereign because she's a fascist?" Sort of. I think the aim of this video was to sort of, basically, point out that the, the far left or the left is so violent that they want to kill fascists or. I'm not sure what that, the message she was trying to get that there. But what she found was most of the people were like, oh, when, she, when they described what she is actually like and what she's advocating for, they're like, well, yeah, she doesn't... I, I'm not sure if I'm for killing her, but I don't think she's a very good person. <laughs> and she only literally found two people who would have been supportive of her political views out of the kind of 40 to 50 um, mm. that, she, that she interviewed.
2: <laughs> so if she, <laughs> she tried to do a session, Baron Cohen and like. I don't know, set people up to make controversial comments and she only succeeded in trolling herself.
3: Yeah, that's basically the, um, the gist of the video. So, yeah. But um, as I said, I think going back to the point of what I do think it's actually very troubling that she gets such a ma- ma- massive mainstream attention. So remember the, you know, we, you know, the social attorney and other groups organise Marxism conferences every year. Hmm. Do we get this, um, and they always bring you know, quite notable far left figures. Do those far left figures get the same media attention that someone like Lauren Sovereign and Stephen Molyneux or Marlene Office gets? Mm, funny Absolutely that. No. Absolutely <laughs> no. Even if they're so called controversial um figures.
2: Controversial left wing figures. Yes. Yeah, um doesn't matter how controversial you are if you're a lefty. You don't well if you're I well did, if so. you're
3: well if you're controversial I mean in the case of um I forgot his name, um the Palestinian actress Basim I forgot his last name, uh, Batim Talamami. Um, he was denied a visa and he was considered a bit of a controversial in in sort of amongst the mainstream media because of his, you know, staunch opposition to Israeli apartheid state. Um, and yeah, he was basically just denied a visa. So it's sort of like you get to see how the, how um, there's mm. a bit of a contrast and how the state treats completely repundant figures like Lauren Sovereign versus, you know, general kind of left-wing figures who have to actually fight um, mm. to get a platform. And I guess that's what makes the sort of counter-mobilisation against this platform because we need, you know, we can't actually rely on the state Um you know, because the state is always just going to give a free pass to these right groups, we actually have to call on our kind of collective power and organise amongst ourselves to you know, demonstrate our opposition to these ideas.
2: Mm. Yeah, no, it's good to see that demo happening. It's um, good work from KAF um, once again, the campaign against racism and fascism.
3: Mm. All right. Um, I guess another, um, another thing that links into this quite strongly is... Um, many listeners have probably seen the kind of recent kind of coverage of, you know, this so-called African gang crisis. And um, what I was quite... Um, Malcolm Turnbull's basically been um, pushing the line of, you know, that Melbourne has an African gang problem, and the Liberals in particular have been handing out really outright kind of racist kind of material that, you know, the material basically describes that we need to stop people, well, stop gangs hunting in packs um, and that, you know, Matthew Guy and one of the Liberal MP will promise to be tough on crime, um, whatever that means. And then they you have a, a sort of shadowed um, background of so-called gangs. And, of course, there is a ra- – clearly, there's a racial implication that these gangs are African in appearance – um, and and the Channel Seven and the other mainstream are having just pushing this line even further, which is you know has the effect of demonising um, the African community, increasing rates of violence and making them you know making them not feel welcome in their own country, which I just think is you know frankly unacceptable. And so um, a number of the African um, People from the African community have actually called for a protest against Channel 7's racist coverage of, um, of their community. Um, and that's going to be at 2pm Saturday the 28th of July. Um, at 2pm outside Channel 7 News Studio, um, in the Docklands. Um, so I think that's a, there'll be a particularly, uh, very important protest to go to. Um, especially since it's very clear to me that in this coming state election, this whole kind of racist sort of scapegoating of migrants um, is going to be a big feature of this election because the Liberals are going to basically go on the attack that Labor has been too soft on crime. And then Labor responds by, oh, yeah, well... Well, we're get... oh, Okay.
2: We have been a bit soft on crime. Well, we'll, we, we'll fix that. Like, we'll get the help, power paramilitary weapons in the hands of the cops and more cash, more resources. Yeah, yes. Belief. So, like, they totally just bend over and, like, kowtow to the,
3: to this scare campaign. Yeah. And I think, um, one, fe- the federal MP, Adam Band, actually made a very strong statement and it's report, it's being reported in the Australian. Um, but, um, Adam Band basically said that, said that you know, Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton, who have been two of the kind of worst liberal politicians in terms of outside, you know, the Mafia guy and so on, are uh, in pushing, um, this sort of racist sort of scapegoating. And they, he made a very kind of strong, clear statement that, you know, they're not welcome in Melbourne, which I thought was a very, um, sort of powerful kind of demonstration, um, sort of a powerful kind of statement to make in light of the context of all this sort of mm. racist scapegoating coming from those, from those major politicians.
2: I think it's really desperate from the liberals they're they're so devoid of any real political platform of any real actual issue to go forward on that they dredge up this just disgusting racism which is so basis like it's it's just so devoid of any sort of of any kind of factual basis. It's mm. so easy to, to look at the statistics and prove this wrong and to look at the double standards of when some white people, I don't know, go and get drunk and break some stuff. You don't hear about the white gang crisis, but there's, you know, one or two incidents here or there and, and like, suddenly there's this African gang crisis. just such utter rubbish. Yeah, mm. uh, well... I think that it's going to be really important as part of that state election campaign. If they want to lead with that, they've got to get absolutely hung out to dry for just such absolute gutter politics.
3: Well, I've actually um, actually liked some of the responses from left wing activists to their sort of propaganda. There was this. There was this one where they basically photoshopped. Stop the liberals hunting in packs, and it's a picture of a group of liberal politicians. Yeah, nice. Um, And yeah, so. And then there was also one attacking the police as well. Stop. Um. Stop people. Stop gangs hunting in packs, and it's a picture of the police force. Mm. Yeah, no, it's really good
2: to see the African community going on the front foot and organising this protest at uh, at Channel Seven on the 28th of July. That's that's an excellent initiative. So um, great to see them not being intimidated and you know coming together and speaking out. Mm. Top stuff. All right, I uh, might play a quick announcement or two, and then we'll get uh, Dusty on the line up in the Hunter Valley.
3: 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner, Yvonne Margarula, invited supporters to come to mirror our country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitmi Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's mira rnet A 3CR supporter.
0: Back for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood, 3066. Right for your mind.
2: Alrighty, welcome back, you're on 3CR, uh, this is Left Radio, and on the phone this morning uh, we've got uh, Tom Mohamed, uh also known as Dusty to his friends. Um, Dusty is a retired uh, coal miner and former CFMEU member, and uh, yeah, he's going to talk to us about some stuff that's going on up in the Hunter Valley. Welcome Dusty.
4: Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, speaking to you this morning, and uh, welcome also to your listeners.
2: Yeah, so uh, can you tell us a bit about this uh, privacy breach that's happened for BHP employees in the last couple of weeks?
4: Yeah, I certainly can. I'd like to. Uh, <clears throat> what's happened is that the uh, at uh, the mine that I worked at, just out of Musselbrook here, that uh, is owned and operated by BHP, called Mount Arthur Coal. It's a part of the BHP bulletin chain that uh, uh, works uh, throughout uh, eastern Australia. There are quite a few mines in Queensland that are linked through the BHP network to uh, Mount Arthur Coal. And what's happened is that um, the company decided, as a part of a cost cutting measure, to shift uh, their uh, pay office and their HR. Uh, offshore, So it's gone to Malaysia, I believe somewhere in Kuala Lumpur. So what happened was that the uh, annual group certificates that uh, are uh, generally mailed out from when we had the... Uh, that uh, department was here in Australia has been uh, absolutely screwed up. Um, instead of coming through the mail, uh, the company decided to think would what a great idea it would be to, if we did it by email. So uh, some of my uh, ex-workmates from Mount Arthur have contacted me and a few others, and uh, they've got uh, emails sent to their homes, to their home computer, for uh, employees that uh, are working in uh, some of the BHB mines in Queensland.
5: Oh, yeah. So and they've course... gone every
4: which way but loose. Um, yeah, the, uh, the people... Uh, at Mount Arthur, absolutely incensed by it, mm. uh, and uh, they uh, uh, fell just short of taking industrial action. Now, as you as you know, uh, on your group certificate is uh, very very personal information. It's your full name, your age, your address, your earnings. But on top of all that, is your tax file number. And mm. w- with, if that information fell into someone's hands that was a bit dodgy, that could be used for identity uh, fraud,
2: Hmm.
4: and it's a serious matter.
2: Hmm. And what's been the response of the company um, when people have, I guess, considered speaking out about this uh, privacy issue?
4: Well, (laughs) uh, what's happened is that uh, there are four crews a, B, C and D, that are working currently at Mount Arthur. Uh,
5: they,
4: they're working uh, rotating shifts. So as each shift comes and goes, the, uh, the management gets together the employees in, in like little groups of 15 or 20 in whatever department they work in and have told them in no uncertain terms that if you like to go on uh, social websites, and uh, blab about what's going on, there is a very good chance that you'll be dismissed. And that's to me, that's just heavy-handed and anti-worker.
5: Mm. These
4: people, these people have had their most sensitive inf- information fall in God knows whose hands. Mm. What's to stop? Say, for example, if I got someone's email, I say, oh look, look what I've got here. Uh, and uh, if I, if I was a dodgy person. God knows what I could do with it
2: hmm. It's not right Yeah, I'm not an expert in industrial law But I'm pretty sure that that's illegal Just claiming that you're going to sack someone For, for factually reporting a privacy breach yeah, occurred.
4: Uh, I agree uh, I know for a fact that uh, A lot of the big uh, major corporations Particularly mining companies Have people sitting down Going through their employees Facebook accounts (laughs) trolling through them just seeing what people are saying. Now I know for a fact, I know for a fact that when I was working at MAC or Mount Arthur Coal um, people were actually dismissed for uh, statements that they put on there uh, about their work or about other people that work in the industry out at the mine. Yeah, right. Very heavy
2: handed. And this is like this kind of threat, that making any sort of complaints uh, on social media, that's not, without, that's not the first time that this has happened, yeah? Oh, no. So there's been similar kind of warnings given before?
4: Yes. Yeah, you go uh, straight on to a level three, and if the, uh, the mine manager or whoever uh, your department manager is in a bad mood, that can go to a dismissal in an instant.
2: And what are some of the other things that might be reported on social media that the company wouldn't uh, wouldn't really enjoy having put out there?
4: Oh, well, the the inner workings of the mine. Uh, yeah, look, they're very 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 secretive about what they do. They don't like anyone knowing what's going on in the in the pit.
2: Mm. I know from from working with some activists up in the Hunter Valley over the years. One of the one of the key public health issues, apart from all the dust from the mines mm. is when there's blasting and it doesn't quite um, <laughs> get set off right
5: no.
2: and you get these orange uh, is it ammonium nitrate and diesel? Look, That's
4: their 6% fuel oil.
5: Yeah right
4: and the, the reason that you get that orange fume is that when, um, when water or, or condensation gets down in and dilutes the blasting material down in the hole mm. and you don't get a, a, a full burn and that is, uh, that's very, very toxic toxic fume. I, I, on a couple of occasions, um, uh, blasting here in the Hunter Valley has resulted in uh, this toxic mushroom cloud and uh, it blows... It, well, it, Mount, Mount Arthur Cole let a beauty off a couple of years ago and it went uh, right across the industrial area, which is adjacent to the mine, and there were quite a few people uh, taken up to the hospital for uh, treatment.
5: Hmm.
4: Oh, disgraceful!
2: Yeah, because ammonium nitrate—it's half burnt. What does that even form? What what is the what, what gases are formed from that? NOx. Oh, not, right.
4: Yeah, it's not not nice stuff at all. Um, nausea, dizziness. Yeah, it's uh, it's. Bad stuff, and I think if you got enough into it, into it, it'd be, it could possibly be fatal.
2: Hmm. Uh, and did, what's the general situation more broadly across the Hunter Valley? Because I haven't been back for a while. What's what's happening campaign-wise? Um, and yeah, at the at the coalface of, of activism against King Coal,
5: as it were.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had uh, a series of picket lines here uh, six or eight months ago against a, a, another grubby miner, a multinational called Glencore. Mm. They, uh, the, all their enterprise agreements for some of the, well, their operations up here in the Hunter, there's the Mangula, Liddell uh, and, uh, uh, and the Washery, they all come to uh, up for renewal all at once. So what was happening was that good old Glencore... Uh, weren't absolutely, they weren't uh, negotiating in good faith Mm. and uh, wouldn't come to the table. So um, the CFMEU, the Mining and Energy Division up here, and uh, they're they're going okay, Uh, they uh, pulled a series of uh, picket lines Mm. at the uh, workplaces. Uh, I went along and uh, lent a hand, uh, jee'd the people up, got them ready to uh, to go in and uh, tell the boss what they thought. And, uh, yeah, so that's been happening. Uh, There was another uh, incident uh, here a while back where there was a stoppage over at uh, a very, very ugly mine that's being built directly across the river from my place called Mount Pleasant. Uh, That's not very pleasant at all for me because the amount of dust that's been blowing out of there just recently has been incredible. But uh, Downer were over there and they had... uh, a stoppage for a couple of days because they weren't weren't paying their people right, and also uh, they had uh, unqualified people doing um, doing skilled work there that shouldn't have been there. It's just a cost cost-cutting measure that uh, these grubby companies do.
2: Mm. And just recently, the uh, the proposed fourth coal loader for Newcastle, which had subsequently then been put on the back burner. Mm. Because the arse fell out of the coal market, that's officially been abandoned by the um, proponent, Port Waratah Coal Services.
4: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a T4. Yeah. And it's uh, t-, a t meaning terminal. It got a terminal injury and it's gone away.
2: So you're going to say T meaning terminator.
4: <laughs> it could well be. Yeah, well, it's it's, uh, it's suffered its own demise. Yeah. And uh, I felt so happy to see that uh, they they'd uh, abandoned the idea of that because uh, some of the dust that blows off the uh, stockpiles at Port Waratah Coal Services and don't forget our other the lovely people at NCIG, uh, it, when the wind blows, it, it just blows straight. Oh, those people that live in Carrington and Mayfield, Waratah through there, oh, how they put up with it, I don't
2: know. Well, just, just for listeners, NCIG is Newcastle Coal Infrastructure Group and it's the other... It's the other company that runs a huge coal loader there, right on top of the Mm. um, population of Newcastle.
4: For for the the listeners' benefit, NCIG is uh, as uh, the major shareholder is the uh, is the lovely BHP, uh, Whitehaven, Yan Cole, Peabody, yeah, all all basically the uh, the slightly smaller players in the game, other than. uh, But having said that. Uh, the big, the big mover in the uh, coal industry up here at the moment is Yan, Yan Coal, mm. the Chinese people. Uh, they are, they've, uh, they're moving in, and uh, they've got a big a couple of big operations out in the uh, the Midwest, out around the mudgy area, and uh, they've got their eye on. I am led to believe from a pretty well informed source that they are looking at taking Mount Arthur coal, and some of the people that are. Uh, working out there that I see on a regular basis, they can't see, uh, can't wait for the day that happens. They, they'd rather put up with the... Uh, well, they 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 have... They're not, not at all concerned about the takeover, possible takeover by Yancol because hmm. they've had a guts full of BHP in their practices. Anti-worker, anti-union.
5: Hmm.
4: They're, just, they're just no good. And the sooner they pack up and leave, the better. Hmm. They got... Um, they bought their way into what they thought. They were going to go in and mine the uh, the Liverpool Plains up on their Karuna deposit. That's for the listeners' benefit, as uh, Liverpool Plains is an absolutely picturesque part of uh, the Upper Hunter uh, of New South Wales. Um. Uh, black soil, two cereal crops a year, an absolute abundance of first-rate first underground water that, they uh, irrigate their crops with, and BHP wanted to come along and go in underneath the Liverpool Plains and mine the seams of coal, mm. uh, cut through the aquifers and uh, cause... Uh, well, they claimed that it wasn't going to uh, cause any subsidence, but anyone that knows <laughs> anything about coal mining and un- particularly uh, coal extraction via longwall, mate, it just absolutely ruins the place. I hmm. saw it in Queensland and I've seen it down here as well too. But what happened, uh, they got burnt off and away they went and then along come the lovely people from China again, Shenhua. Hmm. They also want to establish a, a, a huge open-cut mining area that um, encompasses a known koala habitat.
5: Hmm.
4: So their idea is to uh, they're going to go out into the bush uh, catch all the koalas and uh, relocate them. Uh, well, that doesn't work. <laughs>
5: mm.
4: Yeah, so they that,
2: that wreck the aquifer as well, wouldn't uh, they? That, well, oh, actually,
4: door. actually uh, what uh, where they want to start their open cut mining is in where, in the recharge area mm. for the underground aquifer, aquifer. So once they cut through them, is that the underground water uh, supply is cut off? Mm. So the, the farmers are pumping away, and next thing you know, no water. Mm. And that's uh, Shenhua, a lovely company from China.
5: Yeah. They bought
4: up 43 farms in the Gunnadar Basin, and uh, they're ready to rock and roll. But uh, so far,
2: no, nothing. And so the Karuna, the one from BHP, mm-hmm. that was officially um yeah, She's revoked. dead in the water. What about the Shenwa? is that...
4: Oh, that's still on, still on the burner. That, right. that still may happen. There are a lot of activists in the Gunnedah area that are uh, keeping an eye on that. And as soon as uh, one tractor al- uh, arrives on site or the first sign gets put up, uh, I dare on. say we'll be onto that. Yeah. It's,
5: a, it's, a,
4: it's the same as, uh, for the listeners' benefit, we have another massive project, coal mine, <clears throat> called Malls Creek. Mm. that's owned and operated by Whitehaven Coal that is uh, en- uh, encroached and-, and pushing their way through the Laird Forest. Mm. Uh, that was the scene of some, uh, some big protests. And again, uh, listeners, the Laird Forest is a known koala habitat. I was in there with some people. We did a koala count, and mm. we found koalas in there. Mm. And, uh, but uh, do you think Whitehaven Coal care? Not on your life. All these major, all these big coal mining companies are interested in. For your listeners' benefits, is loaded coal trains heading for the port at all costs? Mm. They don't care.
2: Mm, nasty stuff. It is. But uh, yeah, good to see a bit of uh, community resistance there and people pushing back against oh, yes. uh, King Coal. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we should probably wrap it up. We've got an interview lined up with. Uh, uh, a, a radical economist called Peter Koenig who's going to be talking about the um, uh, recent election in Mexico. But, um, yeah, thanks each for talking to us, Dusty.
4: Thank you, and uh, goodbye to everybody. And uh, stay strong. Keep the red flag burning.
2: <laughs> Thank you. All right. Take it easy. Bye she's uh yeah dusty there for a uh, retired coal miner up in the hunter valley former CFMAU mining member uh giving us a bit of an overview of campaigns and uh unsavory corporate activities up in the uh in the hunter valley all right we've got a couple more announcements and then yeah coming up we've got that interview with peter koenig
1: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Patman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3.5 out Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy.
0: You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio 855 AM Digital and streaming live on 3CR.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues.
4: Yarra City Council presents the 6th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018 Celebrating live music in Yarra Featuring the likes of Blake Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer Penny Eichinger at the Yarra Hotel Queer in the Pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas, A Hip Hop Music Showcase Girls to the Front at the Laundry And much much more 10 days in July with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a three-star supporter.
3: All right. so we have a special pre-recorded interview that we're going to be playing in the next minute. Um, to give a bit of an introduction, it is an interview with Peter Korneg. Um He is an economist and geopolitical analysis, um, and it's, you know he he regularly lectures at universities in the U.S., Europe, and South America, and he also writes quite regularly for a number of progressive uh, and left-wing um, publications, such as. Global Research, Sputnik, Press TV, the 21st Century Telesur, and the Vineyard the of the Sacco blog, and other internet sites. Um, he is the author of a number of books, uh, including Implosion: Economic Thrill About War, Environmental Destruction, and Corporate Greed, and of course, um, he is also the co-author of *The World Order and Revolution: Essays for the Resistance*. Um, so this interview will be, we will be talking to him about the Mexican election results, um, and following um, in future programs, we'll be, we've also done some intensive. Uh, interviews with him about politics in Venezuela, among other
6: things.
1: Thank you very much for being available to 3CR for this interview, Peter. Um, okay. And we'll highly appreciate your commentary on um, what's happened in Mexico since the elections and what may happen. All right, uh, with, with the elections of AMLO. Um, the Andre Manuel Lopez um, Abrodo, known as AMLO, um, what do you see um, as major changes now that he's been elected? Or possible maybe?
6: Yes, this is, a, this is also a very good uh, uh, question. He has been, I think, uh, the first left-wing president, if you can call him left-wing, uh, left-wing president for the last, <laughs> yes. uh, I think, three decades mm. in, in Mexico. So uh, Mexico was uh, uh, totally under the control of uh, of the right, yes. and that right was always helped to be reelected uh, and through through the, the, the US, uh, U.S. system. So uh, you know the U.S. influences basically uh, all elections throughout the world. There's not one country that is spared, and now especially that we know. That we know how uh, Cambridge Analytica has worked, even in the U.S. to bring uh, Trump to power. Uh, we 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 know that uh, that that's apparently possible everywhere. So first, my question to myself is, and to uh, and and to and to the world, uh, which is surprised that uh, he could win, uh, Amlo could win with such a. An enormous landslide. I mean, he won with 50 53% that's right. majority. Yes. Mm. But that's not really the landslide. The landslide is that he had a margin of, of more than 30% to the next candidate. That's, that's right. The landslide. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, that was and, amazing. And that's, and that, that is amazing. And so, uh, my, uh, frankly, my, my first question is, I, I wonder how was that possible with the U.S. controlling all elections around the world? Uh, and and as i said before they have uh, cambridge analytica even though they say they're turned off now but uh, i mean they have apparently according to a whistleblower from cambridge analytica they had uh, influenced within the last uh, three four or so years 200 elections around the world mm. they say and uh and among them yeah, most of the countries in Latin America, uh, there is, uh, was mentioned, was mentioned actually by this guy, by this whistleblower, uh, Argentina, uh, Chile, uh, Ecuador, uh, Brazil, and, um, I, I don't know what uh, what. They're. Of course, Uruguay and Paraguay, where they had these internal coups, all of these were were influenced by uh, by Cambridge Analytica. But what I was most interested in is how did they did they and how did they affect Europe? And they mentioned among them was Germany, France, Holland, Denmark, Italy. You know, you name it. All of these countries that you think they have free elections. Uh, they were all influenced by this, uh, by this Cambridge Analytica, which is a parasite of the social media, and they uses the social media to do so. So, given that, I, I wonder what's behind is There a special agenda behind uh, the election of uh, of uh, Lopez Obrador that he could be uh, with such a landslide elected in in uh, in in Mexico that was my first question now you ask for the, for his agenda and it's, it's not very clear yet but of course what he said already he doesn't want to have a uh, uh, a confrontational set of policies against the United States he wants to sort of work with the United States and he wants especially he wants to be an equal partner in negotiating in renegotiating nafta you know, Trump says NAFTA has been very bad for the United States. Of course. But, <laughs> Everything but, is bad for the United States as far
1: as he's concerned.
6: <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, maybe from his point of view he's right, but it has been much, much worse yes. uh, for 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 Mexico and, and for Canada, not just for Mexico, for Canada too, and especially in the agricultural sector. I think there are hundreds of thousands of small farmers have lost their jobs because of subsidized uh, goods being imported into Mexico and Canada, highly subsidized, I think, at the rate of, uh, depending on, on what it is, it could be at the rate of up to 25% that the U.S. subsidizes their agricultural sector. So, you know, they're unbeatable by a developing country that doesn't have the money to to, uh, to, to subsidize their agricultural sector. Mm. So from that point of view, I think if he manages, as he says, to, to be, uh, to negotiate, renegotiate that on an eye to eye basis, that would be already something terrific. Then the other thing he, he said on a, in a, I think in a, in a recent, uh, TV broadcast, he said he will, he will put emphasis in his, in his social policies on, on, um, the, the, the neglected Mexicans, the brown Mexicans, the yes. brown skinned Mexicans, mm. uh, while he respects everybody he says they have been really neglected which is true and uh, he wants them to be to be, to become self-sufficient or self uh, uh, conscious again so that they can not only live happier lives but also contribute more to the local economy and i think all of those are terrific ideas now to what extent the fifth column will allow that in mexico is 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 another question. Let's not forget that uh, you know he will be inaugurated only on the first of December. So in the meantime, uh, his uh, his predecessor, uh, Peña Nieto, who was a total right wing and total dependent on 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 U.S. policies and has recently be, been involved in in a high uh, drug cartel corruption scandal so uh, he will still be in power until the 1st of December and and with all these uh, all that's going on i mean uh, you know a lot of things can happen until then i wish nothing bad absolutely i hope not and i hope that uh, uh, lopez obrador will finally bring some change to uh, to mexico if it only is internal change because he has enormous challenges one of them is uh, to get rid of the violence you imagine in in the um, in the preparation of these elections i think 120 or 130 candidates or aides to these candidates election candidates were killed hmm. just killed you know so the murder rate is enormous and especially and that has not even directly to do with the, with the drug cartels but the drug cartel murder rate is even higher and nobody really has a handle on it and he said that was also one of his uh, campaign speeches, and even after elected, he said this would be one of his priorities to attack the violence in in the country. So also, good luck. It's uh, not easy. It's an enormous challenge because uh, where money is involved, uh, the 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 domineering forces have every means to uh, to, to 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 stay in power. So uh, yes, it's. It's a tough one, isn't
1: it? Because one of of the things he has already stated that, like, you know, um, between 2000 and 2005, he was elected to the position which is equivalent to the mayor position of the Mexico City. And at that time, he was able to to create a good retirement, publicly funded, retirement uh, pension system and he also built the federal district's first public university and he invested about 30 US dollars 30 million in Mexico Mexico City's first um, major pub- public transport upgrade so he's got a, a, a sort of a leftish um, way of doing things, and that's probably why his approval rating was very high, even at that time. So, as you say, while the money concept is going to be a huge challenge for him, um, the people will be behind him, from what the the polls are sh- have shown with these elections. My biggest concern is, uh, other than the fifth column that you like to mention. <laughs> What's America going to? What the U.S. going to do with Trump? It's so erratic, and, and anything can happen in, as far as Trump goes. How how what sort of a challenge that is going to be for this this guy who, who is publicly minded?
6: Yes, no, absolutely, you, you're right. I mean, he has a a, a terrific track record as a mayor of uh, Mexico City, and with all those investments that he has done in a relatively short period of time. Mm, that's the right. Pension I, and I also, if I uh, remember correctly, he has said that he wants to to expand the pension, the Mexico City pension fund model, the countrywide. That's right. Which is, which yeah. is of course, an enormous cost to the country. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but if he if he can avoid borrowing money from abroad to do that, hmm. and uh, why can't he? Because uh, countries are uh, sovereign, and you can. I mean that that is also the thing that uh, that that brought down Greece because they could have sal- salvaged themselves internally, not with powering from from abroad. And uh, I think uh, he is uh, Lo- Lo- Lopez uh, uh, Obrador. He has ethics enough, and he is uh, he has a personality uh, strong enough that he could probably he could probably do that. And, and and that means, of course, also turning away in, in, in many ways from the IMF and the World that's Bank, right. which are two institutions that just extended arms of, uh, of the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, if he manages to do that, then then chapeau. And that's really a challenge. But uh, if they let him do that, I'm pretty sure he has the guts to do that internally at least.
1: You must how they don't assassinate him in the meantime. That, that's the biggest risk. Yeah, with America yes. right next door. Isn't it? it's, I mean, they have tried so many times to kill Fidel Castro. But... Um, oh, this
6: the times, apparently, yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, didn't succeed, so they're not that efficient. But nowadays, anything is possible. So that's quite a challenge. So we'll have to see how it unfolds, really, don't we?
6: Yes, yes. Uh, and I will, of course, I'm following this basically on a, on a daily basis for whatever news comes out on, on what he does. But, you know, the, the hindrance is that there is a, almost a six-month uh, overlay uh, between uh, Peña Nieto, uh, who was still president until the 1st of December, and the the, the president-elect. Oh. Uh, and and during this time, I think there's a time of negotiation, there's a time of, uh, of perhaps working together to the extent that Peña Nieto allows it. Uh, so his hands are bound until then and I can imagine that he will not divulge too many details of his agenda of in the meantime so that they cannot be sabotaged while he is not even in power mm. uh, this, this is definitely a, a great challenge for this new president mm. and we we have to be aware of it, and I hope the people in Mexico are aware of it. If they, of course, they are dreaming and they are, they are jubilant and uh, hoping that he will change the country for the better, and I'm sure he, he will do whatever he can to do it. But right now his hands are bound. He is not president, so he has not even control over Congress. He will have control over Congress because also in Congress he, his party uh, has or his movement has uh, gained an absolute majority. So he, he could potentially do a lot of things, but it's still six months away. And in, in today's world, uh, six months is a long time.
1: I know. I know they can move things. They can move the the capital out of the country in a matter <laughs> of minutes. Never mind six months. So it's going to be interesting. Right. Um, is there anything else you want to say about um, what's happening, you know, across Latin America? And, and given the, the general um, picture in terms of Trump and his animosity towards almost all the Latin American countries. It, it gives you a bit of a background about what these countries are facing.
6: Yeah, well, uh, you know, this, this animosity has basically started already under Obama, when Obama uh, has uh, named uh, Latin America the, his backyard. Yes. Uh, this, uh, that's, that's, when it, that's when it really started. Uh, I was also jubilant that within the last uh, 15, 20 years, Latin America has become uh, a sovereign subcontinent with sovereign countries of which more than 80% of the population were living in democratically elected uh, governments and, and became very strong and sovereign nations again. Basically, the, 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 I would say the only landmass with people uh, detached from the United States. And that has changed within the last two or three years drastically. It is it is unbelievable that the process, which is a legitimate uh, democratic election process, and not just that, there's it, it a lot of of uh, of consciousness building was was part of it. Uh, that has taken place within 15 or 20 years that liberated a, a whole subcontinent. I mean, 500 million people uh from the fangs of the north that within 3 years you know it was possible to turn basically everything around you know mm. with uh, with macro uh in uh, in uh, yeah. Macri in in, um, in Argentina yeah. uh, then Chile the Brazil coup uh, you know it it is just unbelievable what what the US was able to do within such a short period of time and that's frightening that's frightening, especially under Trump, which, of course, is a a, more is frightening. A, a, per- <laughs> a personality that can um, absolutely not be trusted. Not that he, I mean, he is a crazy person, but he is not alone. And, and yes. we know that he is being manipulated by the dark forces or what they call the deep state. Uh, so he, he is absolutely the right person for, for, for the deep state uh, at this point. And what he will be able to do with Latin America is, is, is a mystery. I do hope, though, that, uh, that that countries like Venezuela and the other one left uh, is, is Bolivia, that they will stand up and at least defend themselves and still send a message out to the rest of Latin America. Mm. And what's going on in Nicaragua is exactly the same. I mean, this is all outside interference yes. uh, in, in Nicaragua you think
1: that's you, you why that's why uh, daniel ortega is doing what he's doing he's, he's being manipulated as well
6: yes of course yes he is, uh, he is uh, th- 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 this push uh, they used a, a small incident an unhappiness of the people a minor unhappiness uh, of uh, of the population to to create to create a storm and to create a movement which is entirely funded and 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 trained and uh, financed and armed even uh, from the outside, and and so I don't know whether they will succeed of uh, of getting rid of Ortega, uh, uh, and that would be that would be terrible. I mean, there would be another country going down the drain, mm. uh, and and I mean Honduras was is already now. It's, uh, Honduras is such a chaotic mess. It's a it's the murder place of Central America. It's uh, it's so insecure, and all of that was uh, was created by by outside. So if the U.S. was able would be able to create uh, what uh, Maduro calls the balkanization uh, of uh, of Latin America, hmm. I hope not. I surely hope not. I hope not because that would be permanent chaos. Yes, well, let's um, end
1: um, on that very positive note, perhaps. (laughs) It's been a very interesting revelation even to me. I I read a lot about these areas, but what you have, um, you know, revealed is amazing. Um, The the details that you have covered are wonderful. Um, So I, I can't thank you enough for being available for such a long time to be able to share your experiences is amused with us and, the, and, and our listeners will, be, will definitely enjoy it.
6: Okay, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and thank you very much for having me. Thank it you. Maybe pleasure. I'll catch
1: up with you in six months' time or something. Thank Bye, me. Peter. Thank
6: you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye,
2: All right. And that is Green Life Radio's Lali Chelia speaking with Peter Koenig, uh, economist and geopolitical analyst uh, about the election of uh, AMLO in, uh, in Mexico and So what that means going forward and the challenges and the opportunities. Uh, Okay, so I've just got a statement that I was keen to read out before we get on to the uh, activist calendar. And this is a uh, statement... Uh, Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy Appeal to unions for support. Protect your landscape, defend our trees. So, if there's any unionists out there today, maybe you're heading to work or you've got your Friday off or whatever, uh, please do listen into this because, uh, yeah, our comrades out there, at out uh, New Ballarat are really needing some help to protect their cultural heritage. So, Works are set to begin on the Western Highway duplication project between Beaufort and Ararat in Western Victoria. The current planned route of the highway upgrade threatens to destroy a significant number of very large old red gum trees, including sacred trees... ...that have been used by the Japarung for over 50 generations. They sit among a culturally significant landscape that is important for Japarung people and traditional owners... ...and important heritage for all Australians. The Embassy is, protecting, uh, is protesting against the planned destruction of significant cultural heritage... ...and the sacred trees that lie along the route of this planned highway upgrade. We have dreaming sites and songlines that traverse through this landscape... Within the geographical region, there are over 750 recorded cultural heritage sites, a third of which are scarred trees. The highway runs across the foot of Mount uh, lani which means home of the Black Cockatoo, which contains important stories and sites, including rock paintings. We appeal to the trade union movement to support our ongoing heritage protection action on Japarang country in western Victoria, to save many sacred and culturally significant sites currently threatened by the VicRoads development. We are not against the development and upgrade of the highway, however, we want to negotiate a route that is less destructive to our cultural heritage. At a time when the Victorian Government has committed to treaty negotiations, we expect a far more respectful and consultative attitude to issues of deep significance for Aboriginal people. The union movement has a rich history of supporting our fight for rights, land and protection of the environment, including where we have fought against developments that impede our ability to maintain our connection to our culture and land. Working with community groups in the past, union green bans saved many socially and environmentally significant sites, Many of these sites in the natural and built environment remain protected and enjoyed to this day. We appeal to trade unions across Australia to support us by moving the model resolution below at their union branch in support of the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy and our campaign to protect our landscape and defend our trees. Any funding... Uh, support for our campaign can also be provided through this link, and it's uh, it's a GoFundMe link. GoFundMe forward slash support towards Japarung Embassy. Keep an eye out for that one on social media. And the the model union resolution is: We stand in solidarity with the Japarung Heritage Protection Action to defend the cultural heritage of the landscape and and scarred trees or sacred trees currently threatened. Uh, with destruction by the Vic Road's Western Highway Duplication Project. We call on the Victorian Government to abandon plans for road construction along the current planned route and negotiate any alternative with the Japarung and other community stakeholders. We stand ready to mobilise on this issue when required. And, uh, yes, yeah, then there's an email address sent to uh, Joda Clark, the uh, Japarung traditional owner, and heritage protection embassy organizer. Uh, so, yeah, if, if anyone, uh, has, is, has moved a model union resolution, I'm sure you could get in touch with, uh, Vic Trades Hall. They just sent a, um, delegation, uh, out to visit that, uh, the, the, um, protest site there. Uh, or you could contact 3CR or you could contact the Green Left, um, Radio Facebook page, and we can put you in contact with Jodie Clark, so you can send that, uh, you know, that union resolution. Let them know about the uh, the, the resolution that you've passed at your union. But uh, yeah, if people can get behind this, that that'd it, uh, that'd be really important.
3: All right. Okay. Um, we'll just play a quick announcement, and then we'll go on to the activist calendar.
7: and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information starved, dumbed down Australian community. Written, authorised, and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Alright.
3: Okay, um, so it's time for the Activist Calendar. Um, as we mentioned earlier um, in our program, um, there's going to be a protest against the fascist mouthpiece um, Lauren Sovereign and Stefan Molnex in Australia. Um, so that'll be happening tonight at 5.30pm at the Federation Square. Well, more, well, it's not really necessarily happening there, but all the counter-protesters will be gathering there. And then when we find out the venue, we'll be going to where we'll be marching to it. Um, on, there'll be performance as well, um, performance song and words with Uncle Jack Shiles, um, an evening of music and spoken word with the legendary actor, musician, um, potter and Aboriginal elder Jack Shiles, and they'll be at 7pm at the St. Charlie Bar Gardens and Functions, 386 to 388 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. On tomorrow, um, there'll be the rally, five years too many, bring them here. This July will mark five years since the PNG solution was announced. Five years of limbo and offshore detention hell holds. two years since Manus was declared illegal, over 1.5 years since the US refugee deal was announced, 10 deaths offshore, and that will be happening at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And it's organised by Refugee Action Collective on Facebook.
2: Yeah, and get on to that, it's a a grinding and it's an ongoing marathon of a campaign, but it's really important to keep getting out there and keep
3: the pressure on about this (coughs) archaic, this horrendous... Policy. Uh, on Monday night, um, there'll be a trivia night for Beyond Zero Emissions, um, which is the program that comes right after us. Um, so there'll be a fundraiser for that, and they'll be at 6.30pm at the Clyde Hotel, at, um, which is 3.8 Cardigan Street in Carlton. Um, there'll be a public meeting on Monday night, um, the case for a charter of rights in Australia featuring Gillian Kriggs um, at 5.30pm at Theatre Q230, Level 2 Kwan D Building at 234 Queensberry Street in Carlton. Um, there'll be a protest on Tuesday, July the 24th. Um, let's put climate change on the agenda um, at 8am at the Parliament House in Spring Street in the city and it's hosted by Friends of the Earth and Act on Climate. Um, there'll be on Wednesday um, July 25th there'll be a protest in support of Witness K and his lawyer at the Com- Commonwealth Parliamentary Officers, Treasurer Place, Offstring Suit, and it's organised by the Australian East Timor Association. Um, there'll be a film night, Indigenous and Youth Incarceration and Education. Um, that'll be happening at 6pm, room 56.04.81 at building 56 RMIT 115, Queensbury Street in Carlton. Um, there'll be a formance, um the ACEs Worn History, um, They'll be at 2 p.m. at the Village Road um, Show Theater, um Saturday, July the 28th. But also happening on Saturday, July the 28th, will be a protest um, outside the Channel Seven offices um, at 2 p.m. Um, it's organised by, um, by a number of uh, members of the African community, calling on you know basically putting the basically calling out Channel Seven for its sort of ra- racist coverage of African migrants and its general scapegoating. On Tuesday, the 31st of July, there'll be a public meeting, um, Fight for a World Without Sexism, Ending Gendered Violence, and they'll be happening at Level 5, uh, the resistance center, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, uh, in the city, opposite RMIT, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. Um, on Saturday, August 4th, there'll be a film screen, Chronicle of the Year of Embers. Um, Algeria's late colonial history is filtered through the eyes of an impoverished farmer who in the late 1930s is forced to leave his drought-stricken land. As years pass, he is caught in the thick of the Second World War. So that'll be happening at 10am at the Acme. Um, there'll be a fundraiser, send a medical team to Gaza, a night of music and entertainment to help send nurse Rihad Alabush Hashi and a medical team to Gaza with much needed medical supplies and equipment to help aid the injured. And so that'll be happening at 5pm at the Fawnberry Theatre, 859 High Street in Thornbury, um, and it's organised by the Palestinian Community Association in Victoria, the Gaza Children's Fund, and Solidarity for Palestine. Um, On Monday, uh, August 6th, there'll be a public meeting banning nuclear weapons. Um, Australia must act, making Hiroshima Day last year, the marking Hiroshima Day last year. The UN adopted the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, but Australia did not vote for it and has not signed for it. So that'll be at 7pm for a 7.30 start at the Cardinal Knox Centre, 383 Albert Street. Um, Sorry. Wait a minute,
2: sorry um. Yeah, it's a really good uh, initiative that one A really good campaign And uh, I was actually listening on 3CR I think if, if a majority of UN member states Sign on to the um, To that nuclear weapons ban It will become international law So even if Australia is a holdout Um I think that's how it works.
3: Yeah. Um, now following up, sorry for that. I missed, um, place the pages. The uh, next event on Wednesday, August the 8th, um, will be a panel discussion, Indigenous youth incarceration in education. Um, so there'll be a panel at 6.30pm at the Arena project space, which is 2 Kier Street in Fitzroy, and it's presented by the Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice and Arena. Um, on Sunday, August 11th, there'll be the Anarchist Book Fair from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Brunswick Town Hall. Um, there'll be on Sunday, August the 12th. Um, no, no, skip that one. On Tuesday, August the 14th, um, there'll be a Co- Cornell West is going to be speaking. Um, that'll be happening at 7 p.m. at the Melbourne Town Hall, August the 14th. So just search Cornell West Speaks Polarised um, Melbourne, and you should be able to find links to book the tickets. Um, and, yep, that's pretty much it in terms of uh, announcements. Uh,
2: Endless the summer there by the Jezebels, bringing you some sunny vibes on a bit of a chilly Melbourne morning.
3: Hmm. Alright, so maybe for the next um, 10 to 15 minutes or so of the program, um, we'll. we'll Bring you some news from the Green Left Weekly In terms of the international section Um, So I just wanted to start a bit of a discussion um, About sort of um, what's happening in kind of Palestine right now Mm -hmm. Um, So... What's sort of some recent developments to kind of highlight is, um, and this is from the, one of the latest articles on, you know, the siege on Gaza, um, is Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, announced on July the 9th that um, his government would close um, Gaza's sole commercial crossing. Um, what this would have the effect of would be preventing all exports from and imports to the territory, with the exception at Israel's discretion of food and medicine. And of course, Gaza fishermen who already contend with Israeli navy fire while earning their bread are now confined to sailing six nautical n- miles out to sea, rather than the nine that they were permitted for, by Israel for the season. Um, the stated reason for what for why Israel Israelis move is the ongoing rebellion among the two million Palestinians. It is effectively imprisoned in partner with Egypt in a densely populated strip of land roughly the size of Chicago. And of course, you know, we all have to be looked in context, you know, Israeli, you know, nuclear power upfitted with the world's most sophisticated fighter jets and weaponry is increasingly frustrated that is, you know, being unable to stop the flaming kites and balloons that have been launched by Palestinians in Gaza. And so, you know, what, what's, um, you know, these low-tech kind of balloons and fires, costing mere pennies to manufacture, have caused Israel, as what they claim, hundreds of fires in southern Israel, burning hundreds of acres of land, incurring millions in damages. Um, And so in sort of... And this sort of act of, protest, sort of using this sort of material, Palestinians in, impoverished and isolated Gaza have managed to disrupt normal life on the other side of the boundary, reminding Israel that it cannot make their lives absolutely miserable and bear no consequence for it. Um, sort of this tactic kind of bear emerged during the Great March return protest, now entering their fourth month. Um, the protests are aimed at breaking the blockade imposed by Israel after Hamas won parliamentary elections in the West Bank in Gaza in 2006, and then took full control of the following a, an attempted US back punch and aiming at forcing it out of power. And I guess the siege is, uh, to give a bit more background, I mean, the siege is the intensification of Israel's policy of closure on Gaza dating back to the beginning of occupation in 1967. Um, Israel already has full control over and tightly restricts all goods um, that come in and out of Gaza, including materials used to rebuild homes. And, you know, two-thirds of Gaza's population are refugees um, and primarily from areas in southern Israel where these fires now range. And, of course... Israel still um, returns, um, refuses to allow Palestinian refugees in, to return to their lands on the ground that they um, are not Jews. And of course, you know, there's all the, the, furthermore, you know, Israel's tightening of its chokehold hold on Gaza is a planned act of collective punishment, uh, a violation of Article 33 of the 4th Geneva Con- Convention and now thus a war crime. And of course, um, there's also a, a bit of a kind of, in addition to what, you know, Israel is doing with the general economic blockade, you also have, we have to examine what they're doing on, you know, on Gaza's agriculture, you know, about... According to um, Gaza's Agricultural Ministry, um, about 2,000 acres of pasture land have been damaged this year alone by herbicides sprayed by the Israeli military. And, of course, Israel has been spraying um, Gaza farmland with herbicides since 2014, um, destroying livelihoods and exposing people and the environment to toxins. About 3,500 acres have been damaged by spraying during that time. And um, I guess more updates, of course, the, you know, Agriculture is one of Gaza's most productive sectors and, you know, it's ground, and it's basically been ground to a halt. And, and I think what's important to acknowledge is that, you know, nearly 150 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces during the Great Return of March protests that began on March 30th and thousands more were injured by live fire imposing an acute crisis on Gaza's chronically strained healthcare centre. And I think, I mean, just including kind of statement is, you know, Israel has tried every means to stamp out the determination of Palestinians in Gaza to be free, but no matter how novel its cruelty and how powerful its military arsenal is, never seceded. Um, and I think, you know... Great harm will be inflicted as Israel escalates its efforts to break Gaza into submission. But, you know, how much more suffering, the author offer us? will Israel's international affairs tolerate before taking meaningful action to bring it to an end? Hmm. All right. And um, now going into sort of maybe some local news, I'm not sure this is not an article in Green Left Weekly yet, although this is... Um, was something printed in the conversation, um, but probably people have heard about um, the issues associated with um, my health record, um, which is so basically to if people don 't know about it yet i mean i 'm sure i think it 's sort of dominated the news press um, but um, the the government is quite interesting actually in how they do this, but basically the the federal government is uh is going to basically make a sort of digital copies of everyone's sort of me- medical record um, and they're going to be storing it essentially um, and as a default provide sort of number of stakeholders and so on with access to it. Um, but the problem is it's not an opt-in system, it's actually an opt-out system. So unless you opt out by October the 15th, your health record will essentially be stored in some central government database. Permanently? Permanently, And updated permanently and you can never get out once you're, once you've missed that opt out date. Yeah. And um if you don't opt out during this period, um till like I think October the fifteenth, I think it is, if I'm being accurate, um, and later choose to cancel your record, um, you'll actually no longer be able to access the record, but then the government will continue to store it until thirty years after your death, um and you need to trust that it will not be bridged. And I guess um one particular academic, um Catherine, um I think her name is Catherine oh I Catherine Keep, um, who's like a lecturer at Facility of Law and UNSW, um, she brings up a number of free kind of major con- kind of concerns of this. Um, and there's the second reason is it creates a security risk. Um, we already know that a lot of government systems are quite insecure. Um, and, you know, health data is actually something that is quite highly prized um, by hackers. Um Another issue is, of course, you won't know who who has seen it, um, who has seen, depending on how people personally feel about that. Mm. Um, it won't just be your doctor who has access to the centralised digital record of your personal health information, um, but it will be numerous people such as doctors, pharmacists, physiotherapists, nurses, and unidentified staff of various organisations. Mm. Um, the other issue, I guess, is one of the sort of justifications, I think, for the government for putting forward for this. I mean... I mean, I think there's probably lots of valid reasons why they're going to do it, but I think it's very problematic that, you know, it's not an opt-in system. There might be a number of people who might opt in with their full consent, knowing all these kind of risks, but it's a, but because it's an opt-out system, it's, it's essentially like the majority of people Will be too will like well like myself. I'm a bit too apathetic to really care to go for the effort of opting <laughs> out. Um, I think I'm in the same boat. Where but 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 there's a lot of because of the there's certain people with healthcare records where they have like a um, where they might have a history of um, substance abuse um, hmm. or drug issues or have to take certain medications who don't who won't feel necessarily comfortable about. Or even actually the worst um, ones, um, people who mo- feel most at risk and vulnerable um, would probably be sex workers who would not want to disclose their... Sex
2: workers, sexually transmitted diseases, mental health issues, there's all kinds of stuff which, it's it it's just goes without saying, you don't want it in the public domain. Yep. So if there's any privacy concerns whatsoever, uh, th- this this could have bad health outcomes where people don't go and have STD checks because they're worried that one day this information, which gets permanently stored for the rest of, you know, until 30 years after you die, uh, might find its way into the wrong hands. People don't go and get um, mental health checks because they're worried that if there's a paper trail which which puts a question over their mental health, uh, that, that that might affect their uh, future job opportunities or mm. something. So I, I think it's... It's, uh, it's very, it's, it's a legitimate, I can see why, I'm like you, I probably won't be motivated to opt out, but I can see why people would mm. be very concerned about this, and I can see why it would have perverse, um, you know, bad health outcomes, because yep. people kind of like self-censor their own healthcare, because they're worried that this might slip into the wrong hands. Yeah, so,
3: yeah. well, but um, going to that, um, one reason that Katherine Hemp um, points out is that it cannot be relied upon as a clinical record. Um, and, you know, she writes here that contrary to what many Australians may believe, um, MHR is not a clinically reliable medical record and was not designed for it to be. Um, so she brings up this example: if a doctor is treating a child in an emergency, the doctor is not going, to, can't rely and could not rely on an MHR to know what medications the child has been prescribed up to date in emergency. An unreliable record is actually a distraction and not necessarily a help. Hmm. And of course, there have actually been many doctors who have in fact objected to the incompleteness and the lack of utility of the MHR. And a recent poll on the MAA's doctor's portal suggests that 76% of respondents think that MHR will not, um, improve, will not improve, um, patient outcomes. Hmm. Um, so yeah, we've gone over the security risk, um, the second thing. Um, the other issue is, um, the government is sort of has Their counter to that is they are planning to... They're planning to allow access to your health information for research purposes by de-identifying your information. Um, So that means your data should not be particularly linked to a particular individual. I mean, that's all well and good. Um, But as Catherine Hemp um, writes here, the government actually... The national government actually has a bad record for successfully de-identifying health information. Um, And the third reason... I sort of gone over this um, like numerous of times over the course of this discussion. Um, an opt out scheme goes just against bad practice, and it's not uh, an ideal way of actually getting fully informed consent. Because um, mm. the reality is, most people, uh, the majority, um, you know, will, like probably me and you, are probably going to be too lazy, too apathetic to even right. bother opting out. Too
2: much other stuff on. Well, and a lot of people
3: won 't hear about it till the horse is bolted yeah and and those and the, and those a lot of those that good section of those people might fe- actually feel that well, maybe I actually don't want to consent to this um mm-hmm. and also the fact is uh, i've we 've gone. We've actually spent like eight to ten minutes sort of discussing, uh, well, six minutes, discussing kind of all the kind of security risk and implications. And the government isn't necessarily um giving all that information out, as they're saying, whereas an opt-in scheme would probably be the best people would have before people opt in. They would go through all these. Yeah,
2: yeah. So you know who's going to have access to it and who
3: isn't and, and what the rules are. Yeah. Hmm. And there's plenty of people who might think, would think it's possibly a good idea to opt in because, you know, they want to help the, help the government be able to do research and so on. But it's just I guess hmm. as, as Catherine Hep said, it's this sort of opt-out thing. It's just bad practice and not a way of getting informed kind of consent.
2: Another thing is, I have a friend who's a nurse, and she said, what happens when they put the wrong files in your My Health record... Because it's a opt-out thing, and then the opt-out thing finishes, and then it's just this kind of set-in-concrete ironclad record, what do you do when someone stuffs up and puts the wrong someone else's stuff in your folder? What's the process that you go through to get them removed and get your uh, My Health Record made accurate again? Because that's, that's another issue that you have in conventional hospitals. You get the wrong file put in the folder and you've got to fix it up. And it sounds like this thing is going to be very like, rigid and difficult to alter. Um,
5: yeah.
3: All right. Okay, so we're getting close to the end of the program. I guess I just want to make kind of one last kind of point... Um, is um, I just want to make a kind of extra motivation um, for everyone to attend who's listening to attend the refugee rights rally tomorrow. Mm. Um, it's actually one significant thing, um, and I think we can. Uh, I'll just give a bit of uh, um, is that I'm pretty sure Zayn you actually did put the motion to the CFMU um, to endorse this rally. Uh, not allowed to talk about what happens I, in CFMU meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the um, CFMU endorsed this um, this rally, and so we'll hopefully get a good branching. They've been sharing it at um, yeah on their on their Facebook page, on their Facebook page, and so on. Yeah. Um, so that's I think quite significant. Um, it'd be good to see other trade unions support. Um, yeah, if you're a union member, be sure
2: to come along tomorrow and wear a union shirt and bring a flag if you've got one.
3: Yeah. Um, another thing to um, mention as well is that it does mark five years since Kevin Rudd introduced the PNG solution and a kind of a bit of a background when Kevin Rudd got actually elected he actually promised that he wouldn't go to the right of he wouldn't he promised he won't wouldn't go ro, um for for this sort of kind of racist scapegoating and so on mm. on refugee policies before he got elected and then he gets elected and then he introduces this sort of PNG solution as some solution to uh, resolve, you know, the issues of refugees, and but, you know, it was never a solution, and it's completely an inhumane one. Um, and of course, this also marks kind of the first, the first protest I got involved when I started getting involved in left-wing um, politics was five years ago. The first protest against the PNG solution when and Rudd introduced it. So yeah, I think it'll be want to make the extra motivation, the extra important to go to the rally. It'll be at 2 p.m. Um, tomorrow on Saturday at the State Library. For sure.
2: Alright, we're going to wrap it up. Stick around for Beyond Zero Emissions. This has been Green Left Radio for another week. You're on 3CR. Cheers, Jacob.
0: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3 website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial.